guys this morning. Um, James, just a heads up, I think my daughter's going to be joining the musician development program anytime now. She's soulfully back there, behold, behold. I'm like, man, bring it, girl. Um, the soul of a, of a, a little body filled with soul. Um, my name is Jamie, if we haven't met yet. Uh, I'm, I'm the guy who most Sundays gets to open up the scriptures, preach God's word as a means of grace to, to his people. Excited to do that this morning. Um, we'll get into that uh, in just a, a second. Before I point you to this morning's passage, if you're new to our church or you, you haven't been tracking for very long, maybe you were here a few weeks ago and, and there were standalone sermons happening and now all of a sudden you're back in the fold and, and we're on a journey that you may not have been a part of. And so let me just catch us up to speed. We're in the book of Luke right now. We've been there for quite some time. We're gonna be there for quite some time, probably the better part of the next year or so. Uh, a journey that uh, we're gonna have a rest stop around the season of Advent to dive into uh, the, the beauty and wonder of the first and second comings of Christ. And, and uh, it's crazy to think that we're um, not months and months away from that, but yet rather weeks away from that. Um, as I mentioned before, the book of Luke, it's one of the four gospel accounts. Most of us know that. Um, it, it's surely a historical account. It's filled with tons of historical details. You see that from the very beginning of the book itself. You don't even have to leave chapter one to see that. But more than that, it's a declaration of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises. As I mentioned on a number of occasions throughout this series, because I don't want it to get lost on us, and so this won't be the last time I say it, Luke composed this writing that you and I might know, that we might have certainty regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. In the words of one commentator, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. If you come in with questions, with doubts regarding Christianity, with who God is, with what it means to interact with God, with whether we can interact with God, all of the various worldviews that we might bring to the table from atheism to agnosticism to deism. Luke wants us to know for sure who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. But more than that, and this is where Luke is going to press on this idea of easy believism that has managed to, to creep its way into the church. And we're gonna see him do this over and over again throughout the rest of this series. More than that, more than knowing for sure who Jesus is and what he's done for us, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is. In other words, Luke doesn't believe in a Christianity that says Jesus died for my sins and I will now coast to my death, be my own God, and when I breathe my last breath, look back on the moment that I prayed a prayer, signed a card, walked down an aisle. Luke has no room for that. Jesus is either infinitely valuable, worth giving up everything to gain, or he's not. There is no third option. Luke has told us that numerous times over. He's gonna, again, continue to share that with us as well, bring us face-to-face -face with that reality as we continue down uh, this road to Jerusalem with Jesus. It's a journey that, many of you know this, would radically transform the closest of Jesus' disciples as they would go on to give their lives, most of them, for the sake of the gospel. And it's a journey that could very well radically transform our lives as we continue to sit at the feet of Jesus and follow him down this Calvary road. And so with that said, 
I want to invite us to open up the scriptures together to Luke chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning, verses 25 through 37. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track with me up on the screen behind me this morning's passage will be there. Any other passages of scripture that we look at outside of Luke's gospel account, any sort of commentary quotes, things like that. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us and ask God to do a great work this morning as we open up the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking you to move by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to stir our minds, to awaken our hearts to the wonder of who you are, be it for the first time, some of us, maybe the 10,000th time for others of us, Lord, that, that it would be not lost on us the wonder of the salvation that is freely offered us in Jesus Christ. Going back to last week, that we would leave this place rejoicing that our names are written in heaven, that our sins are forgiven. And with that, Lord, the outworking of such wonder and rejoicing, that it would be a love for you, ever increasing, and a love for others. The entire law hangs on these two commands. A love for God and a love for neighbor. Lord, I pray that our, our church would not be one that holds on to Christian doctrine, orthodox as it may be, in a disconnected way that has no outworking in our lives, Lord. It's one of the great reasons people are exiting the church these days. Your doctrine's great. It has no bearing in your life, Christian. I'm out. Lord, may it not be said of this church. I pray that, that you would shrink that gap between gospel doctrine and gospel culture for this church and that you would do it quickly, Lord, that more people might be compelled by this city on a hill, by this salt and light expression of your kingdom, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the means of grace that it is to come into spaces like these every seven day, days, the Lord's day. The means of grace that is the preaching of your word. Just as we sit around our dining room and kitchen tables and eat a few meals each day, and they sustain our bodies, Lord, that we come together in spaces like these and, and you sustain us by your grace. And so would you do that this morning? Spirit of God, would you move in power? In the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, I pray. Amen. All right, so this morning brings us face to face with a, a passage of scripture that most of you have never heard before. I'm kidding, obviously. It's a parable that um, most of us have surely heard. Uh, you, you even have organizations out there like Samaritan's Purse. There, there are certain organizations that are named after this very parable as it pertains to, to doing good out in the world. It's a parable that, interestingly, we would not have if we didn't have the book of Luke. Similar to the story of Zacchaeus, the parable of the prodigal son, among other stories unique to Luke's gospel account. Right, we've encountered a, a few shorter parables up to this point in this book of the Bible, including the, the parable of the two debtors and the money lender, going back to chapter 7. 
The parable of the new wine poured into old wineskins going back to chapter 5. In addition, we've encountered the first major parable in the book of Luke, namely the parable of the sower, going back to chapter 8. The story of a farmer sowing seed, scattering seed, the seed representing the word of God, the secrets of the kingdom, the soil representing the various conditions of the human heart upon which the seed is scattered. A parable that that Jesus used, in fact, to, to explain the purpose of parables. A parable being a story with a deeper meaning, A story that communicates a deeper reality or a hidden truth. The misconception is that parables are forever and always meant to make it easier to understand the kingdom of God. But the fact of the matter is that parables prevent some from understanding. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. It's what a parable does. It both reveals and conceals, melting the hearts of those with with ears to hear and eyes to see, those to whom it has been given by God's grace to know the secrets of the kingdom while hardening the hearts of others in divine judgment. It it makes perfect sense that Luke would include the parable of the Good Samaritan right here in his gospel account. Remember, Jesus has just called his disciples to rejoice if you were here last week, not first and foremost in their success or their authority or their power, even that which they've been given in terms of their giftings for the sake of Christ and his gospel, rather to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. Chapter nine, verse 20, on the inside of the promise. An exhortation which Jesus follows with a prayer as he himself rejoices in the mysterious Gracious will of the Father, the Father having hidden the secrets of the kingdom of God from the wise and understanding while revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God to those who are childlike in humility and lowliness. It's Mary's song of praise going all the way back to the very beginning of this book of the Bible. As Mary sings, Luke chapter 1, verse 51, He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Right? It makes perfect sense that last week's passage would be followed by this week's passage as we're brought face to face with a man wise and understanding in his own eyes. If you pick up the story in verse 25 of chapter 10, Luke tells us, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Here we're told that Jesus encounters a man well-versed in the law, an expert on the law of Moses. Remember, Jesus has just recently declared to his disciples, chapter nine, verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, those educated in the Jewish law, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus has also just recently prayed, I thank you, Father, chapter 10, verse 21, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus has just declared, just declared, that the secrets of the kingdom of God are not for the wise and understanding. And who comes along? None other than a man well-versed in the law, a man of great wisdom and understanding, in his own mind. You see what Jesus is doing here? See what Luke is doing here from a literary standpoint? We're told that Jesus encounters a man well-versed in the law, and the man asks a really good question, right? Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe that's the question that some of us bring into this place this morning. The question of how to get right with God, so to speak. Maybe you've been out of the church for quite some time and you're back in a part of the de-church community, been burned along the way in the past and you're trying to figure this thing out. If that's you, whatever brings you into this space, I'm excited that you're here and I think we're gonna get to the answer to that question soon enough. For others of us, we'd love to have someone ask us that kind of question, right? The low-hanging fruit of evangelism. No relational investment, no years and years of prayer for, for a person. Just the simple question, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? Except that it's not a simple question because the man that Jesus encounters isn't asking from a place of humility. This is a very different situation than that of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 who asked Paul and Silas, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That man having come to the end of his robe. No, the lawyer that Jesus encounters is coming from a place of perceived wisdom and understanding, and more than that, a hostility toward Jesus. Let me offer a few reasons why I think this is true. For one, we're told that the lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test as he's surrounded by people sitting at the feet of Jesus, a posture of discipleship, the man stands up, one. The same language here, putting Jesus to the test, the language used in Luke chapter four to describe the temptation of Jesus by Satan in the wilderness. That Satan attempted to put Jesus to the test in an effort to derail Jesus's mission to which Jesus responded, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet here, we encounter a man seeking to put the Lord Jesus to the test. Second, we're told that the man is well-versed in the law, meaning that he knows what the Bible says. He's well-versed in the scriptures. We'll see it in a moment. He's not really looking for answers. He's looking to use his knowledge to trap Jesus. Right? If James ever asks you, what must I do to play guitar? Don't fall for it. We're told that this man is an expert in the law and that he comes to Jesus asking Bible questions. Third, we're told that the man, according to verse 29, we'll get there soon enough, is seeking to justify himself. This is not the posture of someone genuinely seeking answers. This is the posture of someone looking to prove themselves right. This man asks a really good question with a really terrible motive. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This man seeking to put Jesus to the test. Jesus does this a lot in the gospel accounts. Now put to the test himself. Jesus answers his question with a question. You're the expert in the law. What does the law say? It's an opportunity for the man to, to show off his knowledge. And so he responds, verse 27 you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Man responds with a couple of references to the Mosaic Law, those VBS Bible drills. They worked out in the moment. We would expect that from him. He's an expert in the law after all, right? Better get this right if nothing else. The reference is coming from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. 
And then also Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The lawyer responds to Jesus with the scriptures. What must a person do to inherit eternal life? Answer, love God and neighbor. Easy peasy, as my kids say. Verse 28. He said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus affirms the the man's basic understanding of the law as his cited references to the Mosaic law. They're not the issue. The issue lies with how far the man is willing to go in applying the command to love his neighbor as himself. The man had asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus says, do this and you will live. Here, the the appropriate response would have been for this man to fall at the feet of Jesus in acknowledging his own failure to love God and neighbor perfectly. Jesus says, essentially, eternal life comes at a price, namely perfect righteous obedience. Live out the great commands of God perfectly, and eternal life is yours. Jesus' statement here, it allows for two responses. Luke's doing it all over again. No third options. Either I can't do it, it's not possible, I need a righteousness outside of myself, or I can do it, it is possible, I just need to find the loophole in which I can justify myself or the right boxes to check. The second of which is the lawyer's response. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, how many days a week do I need to read my Bible for God to love me? How many minutes a day? How much of a prayer life do I need to have quantitatively? This story would be over. We could all go home if this man had responded, I can't do it, Jesus. I don't love God and neighbors as I ought. Son of David, have mercy on me. Instead, His desire is to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which assumes that some people are not. What's the expectation? Checking of the box, so to speak. How good is good enough, Jesus? Who must I love? Question that Jesus has already answered, going back to chapter six in his famous sermon on the plain. Enemy love, Jesus said there. A completely unnatural, supremely radical love without limits. The kind of love expressed in the now famous story that, that Jesus goes on to share with the lawyer. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Right, Jesus responds with a parable which doesn't bode well for a man wise and understanding in his own eyes. Again, chapter 10, verse 21, the father is pleased to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to little children. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus says, 17 mile stretch through the barren wilderness of Judea, about a 3,000 foot drop from start to finish in elevation. It's the area of town where you lock your doors. You don't gas up at, at this exit, so to speak. Palestinian mountains, they were a great hiding place for people to rob people, travelers of their possessions. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus says, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this is fascinating what Jesus loves here, uh, does here. I, I love it. Um, we oftentimes make our judgments about people on the basis of their external appearance, that kind of book by its cover stuff, right? And yet Jesus leaves no space for that whatsoever, giving us little to no information about this man left for dead. We know he's a man. That's about it. Naked, stripped of any and all identity markers. Who is my neighbor? Good luck trying to shrink the list down. Now by chance, Jesus says, a priest was going down that road and when he passed him, he, he, or when he saw him, I should say, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Right, here you have two men who stand among the religious elite in their own different ways, a priest and a Levite, both involved in temple duties, both likely having just left the temple. Here encountering a man beaten, bloodied, seemingly lifeless, for whom to stop would have been to risk ritual purity in the possibility of touching a corpse. I mean, they didn't know if he was dead for sure. Not to mention the danger of stopping in the bad part of town. Who wants to do that? Perhaps they, they just simply are too busy. Maybe they don't even care. Jesus doesn't tell us why they don't stop. He simply tells us that they don't stop. Both having clearly seen the man lying on the side of the road, again, Jesus refuses to help us shrink the list down this time as it pertains to motivations for why we would stop versus keep going. Verse 33, and this is where it gets strange. But a Samaritan, Jesus says, as he journeyed, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, many of you know this, that to say this is shocking would be quite the understatement. Right, the lawyer and those around them, they were probably expecting a third passerby in keeping with the, the techniques of Jewish storytelling. Maybe a Jewish man unassociated with the, the clergy, which few people honestly would have ha wouldn't have had a problem with. Many people were unhappy with the religious establishment. And yet none other than a, a Samaritan enters the story. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Samaritans, considered the refuse of Jewish society in Jesus' day. It was Samaritans who opposed the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. It was Samaritans who built a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. It was Samaritans who denied the validity of much of the Old Testament. It was Samaritans who went so far as to mix paganism and Judaism. One of the greatest insults that the Jews could think to hurl at Jesus is found in John chapter 8, verse 48, where they call him a demon-possessed Samaritan. Right, that's a one-two punch right there. The hatred was so bad that many Jews would bypass Samaria on their way to Galilee in order to avoid Samaritans altogether, even going so far, think about this, to pray that God wouldn't remember Samaritans in the resurrection. All right, it's one thing to hate somebody, but, but that's going a step further than most. You, you can just imagine the, the lawyer's gaping mouth at this point in the story as Jesus communicates to him that it's a Samaritan who shows compassion. And we're talking about far more than, than throwing the beaten man a Band-Aid and continuing on your way. 
Look at how Jesus continues with the story. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan makes the costly sacrifice of not just stopping, right? Many of us, it'd be a big deal for us to stop rather than just pass by. What does he do? He pours out oil and wine like the woman with her alabaster flask of perfumed oil going back to to chapter 7. He walks all the way to the inn, giving up his own animal that this bludgeoned man might have a place to ride. He sacrifices not only two days' wages, but opens up a tab, saying to the innkeeper, when I come back through, just let me know what I, what I owe you. Right? There's, we don't know the character of the innkeeper, what he's going to bill this guy for. Hey, he rented a few pay-per-view movies. He cleared out the wet bar. Sorry, couldn't stop him. Room service several times a day, and he, he you know, ate up the internet with his usage would have been costly to the Samaritan to help this wounded man, regardless of whether or not the innkeeper was on the up and up. Jesus concludes this story and looks at the lawyer and he asks, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus asked one of the Right, easiest questions in all the gospel accounts to answer. Doesn't take a rocket science, right? Only one of the three men truly loved his neighbor as himself. Verse 37, the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. Though he does get the answer right. The one who showed him mercy, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Anybody else sobered? I mean, it would have been challenging enough if Jesus had said, the priest and the Levite cared for the wounded man. Be like the religiously elite priest and Levite. Palestinian Jewish Jesus says the Samaritan is in, the priest and Levite are out. That according to Jesus, the priest and the Levite are no better than the robbers, the failure to preserve a life just as merciless as the willful attempt to take a life. All the more merciless knowing, think about this, that the priest and the Levite, they were accustomed to reciting the very verses that the lawyer had brought before Jesus both morning and night. In fact, they had probably just recited this this idea, this confession of loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving neighbor that very morning in the temple before they left. They were probably gonna recite it again before they went to bed and bookended right in the middle of those morning and evening confessions of their deep love for God, the failure to love their neighbor. Might there be something in that for us as we come into places like these and we make our confession and then we step out into the world There is no loophole. The question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, will you be a neighbor to anyone you meet? Right? Jesus turns the table on this man. 
As he changes the question from what kind of person is worthy of my love to what kind of person am I? Right, once we're told that there's a half-dead man lying on the side of the road, think about this, the shift uh, of, of focus moves from that guy to the kind of people who are walking by for the remainder of the parable. Jesus doesn't say, that wounded man, he's your neighbor. Rather, he asks, who proved to be a neighbor to that wounded man? Jesus has already done it in Luke's gospel account. This is just on repeat at this point. He's calling for something completely unnatural and supremely radical, a kingdom ethic of love that none of us could ever hope to perfectly fulfill, a love without loopholes, a love without limitations, right? It doesn't require any sort of heart transformation to love those who love us and are like us. Even the extorting tax collectors of Jesus's day were good for that. The parable of the Good Samaritan declares your right standing before God on the basis of your own righteousness will be the death of you. Stop trying to justify yourself before God. Consider the mercy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. His mercy far greater than that even of the Good Samaritan. Having come to rescue us, not when we were half dead and holding on for dear life, but when we were already dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2. Having crossed not the street in order to rescue us, but the immeasurable distance between heaven and earth. Having given up not a few days wages and a measure of convenience, but his life. The same Jesus who would go on at the end of that Calvary road to cry out in one of the greatest acts of enemy love the world has ever known. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The lamb without blemish or spot whose righteousness is credited to sinners by faith. Forever satisfying the law's demands against us and bearing our sins in his body on the tree. So that in him the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. Therein lies our justification. Therein lies our right standing with God. The evidence of which in the lives of the saints will be ever-increasing spirit-empowered love. The outworking of God's redeeming love for us in Christ. We saw it in the stories of both the centurion servant and the sinful woman forgiven in chapter 7. That out of the ashes of self-abandonment comes a life of love in grateful response to the true forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. In the words of one commentator, for Luke, true faith is what happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness. And the sign and proof of this faith is love. I would ask, where, where do you see pain around you? Where do you see hurt around you? Where do you see opportunities to by God's grace, show compassion and care to be inconvenienced for the sake of others to the glory of God. D.A. Carson says, and I think this is incredibly compelling in a day and age in which so many people have exited the church in spaces like these, citing near the top of the list that the church's confession and doctrine doesn't seem to match her practice in life. Carson says, I am persuaded that 
Should the Spirit of God usher in another period of refreshing revival in the Western world, one of the earliest signs of it will be that admission of spiritual bankruptcy which finds its satisfaction in God and his righteousness and goes on to be richly merciful toward others. It's the seed of faith birthing the fruit of righteousness. Going back to last week, have you heard those sweetest of words wash over you? Your name is written in heaven. Your sins are forgiven. Do you know the forgiveness of Jesus? The life of love and gratitude that flows from the forgiveness that's found in him. He who's been forgiven much loves much. Invite you this morning to rejoice that heaven's king has satisfied the heart piercing demands of the law on behalf of spiritually bankrupt sinners like you and me, filling us with his spirit, mind you, that we might sing with our hearts and lives the song of the kingdom, a salt and light kingdom of God glorifying neighbor love by his grace, completely unnatural and supremely radical. <laughs>